The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. Hey, guys, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high, and we will make sure that you get one. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Great job, guys. I I love how we kind of mix it up. Some weeks it's nice to have that sort of soft, meditative worship, and sometimes you just need to belt out how good Jesus is. You know what I mean? Praise God. Hey, uh, I have a couple of announcements for you. So as you're turning to Colossians chapter 2, we have uh, um, just some stuff if you can sort of track with us and ignore the nothing to see back there, nothing to see back there. Um, and collapsing is no joke around here nowadays, you know what I mean? Like, don't mess with us there, Walter. Um, okay, um, first of all, um, you guys know we love to give books away here that kind of point out things that we've been blessed by or, or, or whatever, and, and I know, now, we've had a couple of weeks, we, we had what had happened with Stephanie, as you guys know, and then last week was Celebration Sunday, we didn't do it, um, but I have not forgotten, ladies, as I'm sure you haven't either, that um, I probably... Uh, completely threw one of your favorite devotional books totally under the bus a few weeks ago. And um, I, I, I haven't forgotten that. But what I did want to do is I'm reaching out to you, okay? I'm reaching out to you, ladies. This is a phenomenal book written by Jen Wilkin from, uh, she's one of the women's ministry directors at uh, the Village Church, which is where Matt Chandler is a preacher. They're part of the A29 network as we're a part of. This is a book called Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Minds by Jen Wilkin. It's a phenomenal book. Um, As you guys know, when we do give books away here, we have rules. And the rules are, number one, you have to actually read it. I know they're coming. I don't even want to see. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even... I don't even want to know, um, but, but you have to actually read it. And number two, um, when you read it, when you finish reading it, you have to pass it on. Okay. This is not about, you know, that guy that has like a whole bunch of books on his shelf just to look smart, but he hasn't read any of them. That guy, we're not that guy. Amen. So read it, be blessed by it, pass it on that others might grow from it as well. Um, also a couple other things. Uh, let's see here. There's just, first of all, if you didn't get one of these, get one on the way out. Cause there's, there's a lot of stuff going on that we're just not going to have time to, to go through all this stuff. So please make sure you grab one of these. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of info. Covenant renewal is going on. If you haven't gotten an email, those of you that are covenant members here, if you haven't got an email from us, please let us know. But, um, covenant membership renewal is going on. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff there. Um, also, um, Heritage Basics class is coming up, I think, on February 25th. So if you're not a Covenant member but would like to be or are interested in being, um, I'll be meeting with you on February 25th to kind of talk through um, who we are as a church, our doctrine, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a, a prerequisite to being a Covenant member here at Heritage. So um, check that out if you can. Just a lot of, lot of stuff on this flyer. Um, also, flip side of 50 group. Um, our flip side of 50 group um, has asked if I would just kind of let you guys know that um, we're a missional church. We want to reach out in mission in lots of different areas. And one of the ways that our church is doing that is the flip side of 50 group wants um, to just make themselves available to serve the body, um, especially um, uh, single moms, widows, uh, people in that category, not just men that don't feel like mowing their lawn because the game's on early this week, but like people that, that just need some help. And it could be as simple as changing a light bulb 
just whatever they can do to serve the body here at Heritage, they want to make themselves available to. So if you could uh, check that out, get a hold of them, or if you're aware of needs, whatever the case may be, they would love to continue to serve you in that way. And if you're not in that group um, and you are on the flip side of 50, you should join that group. I think they have more fun than any group in our church. I mean, they're just, uh, um, it's a pretty pretty awesome group. They got a mission trip to the mission, I think, is being worked out right now. All sorts of things. Bob and Kelly are right here. Bob, raise your hand up nice and high. Kelly, you can too. Everybody say hi, Bob. Bob, don't be rude. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. My goodness. We also have an opening for leader of the flip side of 50 group now, apparently. <laughs> So make sure you jump in there. And then uh, the last thing is, is that today after service, we have our pastor coffee. Um, our pastor's coffee, if you're new or new-ish, is an opportunity for us to meet you, introduce you to our church, um, to the things that we're passionate about here, and, and just be able to answer questions, um, come alongside you, maybe even if we can, find ways to help you connect with the body here at Heritage. I know that um, it's really hard sometimes to come into a big church and feel like you can't really find a way in. Um, I noticed some of you were not finding ways into seats actually during worship just a little while ago, but um, we want to help you with that the most that we can um, with regards to just plugging into the body. So that's one of the ways we can do it. It only takes just a few minutes right after church. I'll meet you in the coffee shop right over there and would love to talk with you for just a few minutes. And by the way, to that end with regards to seats, because we're kind of a packed house in here. First of all, we do have have an 830 service, um, which is also growing as well, but lots more seats in the 830 service if some of you want to serve the body by freeing up seats and doing that. Um, and the second thing is when worship's going on, when it's dark, all that, it's, it can be hard sometimes to find seats. So if you're there, if, if you're here, the best you can do to kind of scooch in or everybody scooch to one side or just scooch in general, just some general scoochiness would help us and serve others here at the church. So get your scooch on heritage. Amen. All right. With that in mind, do me a favor now that you're all nice and comfortable and let's open up the book of Colossians chapter two. And will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be studying verse 6 through 7 of chapter 2, but we're going to read here verse 6 through 15 for this next little section of study that we're going to be in here as a church. So in honor of God's word, let's look at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. It says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of your word. 
of gathering together with family and friends here, the body of Christ, united by your spirit. We thank you, Father. It is an incredible privilege that we might have the word of the creator of heaven and earth before us. And so our prayer now is, Lord, even as we stand here with our heads bowed, may that be the posture of our hearts. Lord, may we be at attention, ready to receive instruction for our, from our King, and heads bowed in humble submission before your word that you might have your way with us. I pray, Lord, you would speak to us and teach us this morning that your spirit would move. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O oh, my rock, my King, my Redeemer, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Um, I've been super nervous today about how my voice is going to hold up. <laughs> um, it's been quite a week. Between New England coming, well, let's change that. Um, between Atlanta completely melting down and handing the Super Bowl away on a silver platter like a ugh, bunch of Chick-fil-A's, I guess. Isn't that where Atlanta, Chick-fil-A's from Atlanta, right? I think so. Anyway, between yelling over that, which I, I did, um, the learn to ski program, my kids are in the next day up in the cold and it was all windy and everything and yelling through that, which is sometimes woohoo and sometimes where are you going? But I wore that down. Then there was that debacle of a college basketball game this week when Satan won a temporary victory through the Duke Blue Devils over the North Carolina Tar Heels and all that. And I, I totally yelled then. I, if you saw me, I don't watch that game with anyone. I don't, people would be like, hey, let's watch the game. And I always tell them, no. Um, you will never come to my church again if you watch me watch that game. So we're never doing that. There was a lot of yelling there. And, and, and now I'm coaching junior high um, basketball for the Junior Comets here in town. My daughter's team, head coach there. We had our first game. A lot of yelling involved in that. So it's my, my voice is, is struggling this week. Um, we will see if we can make, make it through it. It's been quite a week. But um, there's some, been some cool things that I've got to experience and, and some lessons that have kind of been reiterated even in those things that I've been a part of this week that I've seen play out and, and even see here in the text. And, and one of the things that kind of has been popping out to me lately, even as I'm studying this word and as I've been going through this week with regards to skiing or the basketball or whatever, is this idea of sort of foundations or elemental ideas like the basics, the idea of just the basics. So, uh, for example... Uh, the kids are in the learn to ski program, as I said, and my daughters have never snowboarded before. So they're, you know, I checked them into class and, and at first I was a little bit weirded out because I thought my involvement in getting them up to this, they go every Monday, it's part of the school system thing. I thought my involvement was I just drive them up there, check them into their lessons, and then I get to just go bomb the mountain all day. And then when they get done with their classes around midday, I go catch up with them and then just hang out on the bunny hill with them the rest of the day. Um, but their teacher apparently had other ideas or assumptions or whatever. And so she grabbed me right as I dropped them off. And she was like, hey, so I need you to help me out with this. I've got these three kids and, and they've already had the beginner lesson stuff. So they're sort of waiting. Their lessons don't start till later. And they would like to go ride some of the hill. Would you mind taking them around the mountain? And I was like, all right. Like my flesh was irritated. You know what I mean? Like I was just going to go ride. I had headphones in the whole thing, man. I, I was ready to go snowboarding. So I had these kids and I get them out there and I'm like, I'm like doing the whole thing. All right. All right. Come here, kids. They're little. I'm like, all right. 
how, how good are you? Like trying to figure out where are we going to go? Like, where can I take them? Mount Ashland's steep. I don't want to get them in trouble and all that stuff. So I'm talking with them and you know how kids are. They're like the greatest at everything they think. And so they're like, I do everything. And I'm like, right, sure, whatever. So I'm like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop in on the mountain here. We're going to go down the hill. And at the bottom, there's Windsor chair on one side, which goes a little further up. And there's Comer on the other side, which stays kind of low. I don't want you to get in any lines. I'm just going to watch you. And as we go down the hill, when we get to the bottom, I'll decide what lift we're getting on based on how good you guys are. And they're giving me the classic little kid, snotty little thing, right? Yeah, I want to go and come around. You know, all this kind of stuff. All right, fine. We'll see. So they're all strapped up. Now they're skiers. I'm a snowboarder, so I have to do that thing on the ground, like buckling all my stuff. And they're like, can we go? Can we go? I'm like, you're not even my kids. You can just, just I can go, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> but no, I'm not doing that. And I'm worried like I'm going to lose them. So finally they're like, can we go? Can we go? And I get up and on the board and I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's go. And those kids, boom, missiles down the mountain. Like I'm never best skiers on earth those three kids right there one of them shoots off to the right this girl like the most timid little and she hits this jump she's like 10 feet through the air I'm like right on we're going to Ariel let's do this like this is going to be a good day tell the teacher we can do this all day but he, so here's what happened here's what happened so we, we go from that and then in the afternoon my daughters are kind of done with their program and I want to go over and see them and so they're over on the bunny hill what's it called sonnet I think is what it is on Ashland so I go over to sonnet and I get on the lift and the lift operators at sonnet they are sort of required to assume that everyone in the sonnet line is a beginner and I'm not a beginner I've been snowboarding for a really long time so I, I get up there and my pride was pricked because I get up to the thing and he's like, okay, sir, here's what we need. You need to keep your board straight. Keep your, And he's like giving me all this stuff. And I'm like, I could run circles around you, man. Like I don't need, like my pride was kicked in, but I'm not doing that. The other kids, I was okay. I was chill. So I get on the lift and I go riding up there. And then I'm, I'm on the hill and I'm looking at my daughters and I'm watching the stuff they teach. And, and here's what I can tell you. When, you. when you take that basics class, snowboarding, many of you guys have had, do you move on from that? Like, do you stop doing the things you learn in the basics class and move on to other, I mean, falling, hopefully, right? But other than that, you, you don't move on from those things. You might add other skills. You might get better. You might learn to jump, all this stuff. But on a snowboard, you still stop the same way. You're still riding the same edge. You still turn the same way. Like, you're building on, you don't really ever fully leave behind the elemental parts of what you learned at the beginning. Basketball is the same way. Coaching this junior high girls team, the, the head coach of the Crater Comets girls team met with us at the beginning of the season and was like, hey, here are the things we expect that you will teach the kids that you're coaching so that by the time they get to our level, if they want to play um, high school basketball, they'll have these basic foundations in play. And so if you're coaching level one, it starts off at the very basics. It's like little bitty kids just dribbling, Right. And with one hand, not two, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, like really basic stuff. And then level two goes in and they add some more stuff. And then they get to level three, which is what I'm coaching, which is right before they go into high school. And so up there, they want us more advanced drills, um, maybe even some intro into some like motion offenses. And I'm, I'm a basketball geek. Like I'm from North Carolina. Like we eat, sleep, drink basketball from there. You guys with your like, oh, I saw Carolina lost. Ha ha ha. I'm like, you don't understand it. It's like you're making fun of my children right now. Like that's how serious it is to me. It's, it's that, it really is that bad. So, um, so my team, we run the triangle. If you don't know what that is, that's the same offense the Los Angeles Lakers run. 
Like, that's the motion offense that I'm running with these girls. I'm like, from day one, this is what I'm going to teach you. We're not even going to touch defense for like two weeks. We're just going to run these patterns. So we're doing like these advanced offenses, and they're getting it. We destroyed this team yesterday. First game ever at one point, it was like 28 to 6. I'm sitting there thinking like, should I tell them to stop shooting? I don't really know what to do right now. It was like that bad, and I, oh, I felt good. Anyway. Our team's the Tar Heels, too, so it helped a little, right? You know what I mean? It helped a little. But here's the thing. They're still dribbling. They're still passing. Oh, there may be things that are added in, new understandings, all that kind of stuff. But you never stop dribbling no matter how far, unless you're in the NBA. You never stop dribbling no matter how far you advance in basketball. Those fundamentals are still part of. Now, much more so in Christianity. Much more so. Sometimes there's this belief, okay, the gospel's how we get saved. Jesus died for our sins. We understand that. Now let's move on to other things. Let's leave that part behind. We don't even have to think about that anymore. We got that. That's in our back pocket. Put it away. We're good. When we get to heaven, we'll pull the certificate out, show that we graduated from the class, and move on in. That's not how it works. I mean, the gospel is not just the foundation to our faith. It's the door we walk in. Yes, it's the foundation we stand on. Yes, it's the walls that protect us and separate us from the world. It's the roof that protects us when life rains down on us. It's the window by which we look at the rest of the world. The gospel is everything. Is it foundational? Kinda. But more than that, it's every, it is Christianity. It is. So you never leave those principles Well, here we're in the book of Colossians. And this section that we're in now, starting in chapter 2, is a transitional part of the text. And and I know this is a little bit of a long intro. It's about to get a tiny bit longer. But we haven't been here for a couple of weeks. And I think this transition is important to understand before we delve into the other things that we're going to be getting to in the weeks ahead. And here's why. As many of you know, if you've been with us, the book of Colossians is a letter written by Paul. He was a missionary. He would go around to different places, usually urban centers, bigger cities, and he would plant a church, and he would raise up leaders, and then he would leave trusting that the people in that church and the leadership in that church would then go around to, let's say, the suburbs, the the smaller communities around there, and he would move on to the next place. And so this church was one of the secondary plants. He had gone to a place called Ephesus, and he'd been preaching there, and a guy comes in there, hears the gospel, gets saved, learns of the gospel, learns these biblical truths, and then he makes his way out of Ephesus, and he comes to this place called Colossae. And he comes into Colossae, and he begins preaching the gospel, and a church gets planted there. Now, Paul did track with them, though we have no evidence that Paul ever went to this place. He was aware they existed. He was still considering himself a father to them. And so he tracked with them. And so once in a while, he would get report. How's so-and-so doing? How's that church doing? And so many of the letters, that have, in fact, most of the New Testament from the book of Acts on, most of that is letters to specific churches by Paul or Peter writing to these churches and most of the time to address issues that they were experiencing as they grew in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the issues in Colossae were significant ones and important ones to again push down on to understand this transition that he's making here in the text. So this church was being threatened by two outside teachings. 
Two different influences coming in and pressing into the church to try to adjust their philosophy, affect their teaching, get them to believe a different way. Two different teachings had influence. The first one came from what's known as Gnosticism, Gnosticism with a G. The Gnostics came from there, and and their faith was basically this. They believed that at the fall, everything material was fallen and now wicked, evil, sinful. So anything made of matter, I don't mean things that matter, I mean things made of matter, tangible, real things here on earth, all of it's fallen. So they would say, including our flesh, our own bodies. And so if we want to honor God, what's really important are the spiritual things, not this fallen sinful matter. And so what they would do is then say, so to really impress God and to follow God, what's important to us is have nothing to do or as much as we can with material things or things of matter, things of the flesh and the spiritual things are what's important. So this is where you get movements like monasticism. If you think of the monks who would go and live out in the middle of nowhere, pray all day, not talk. That's the idea. I want to separate myself from the world and devote myself to nothing but spiritual things. So it separates the world into two categories, right? Secular, spiritual. Jesus would not, he he would abandon that. That's a teaching for another time. But this is the way they believe. So you would have these Gnostics that are like, okay, you're saved, you have Jesus, whatever, but... But if you want to honor God, if you want to please God, if you want to serve God, you've got to starve the flesh. You've got to have nothing to do with anything. You've got to separate yourself from the world. And they would even go so far as to wound themselves, beat themselves, uh, um, asceticism, this sort of self-abuse that I will prove to God how serious I am about him by even wounding this fallen flesh that I'm wrapped up in. Only the spiritual world matters. You can kind of see elements of this. You guys have ever seen videos like on Easter Sunday or on Good Friday, really, where you'll see places in the Middle East and they, they're marching the Via Dolorosa, the, the place where Jesus walked, uh, um, we believe, as he went to Calvary there during the crucifixion. They'll walk that. And have you ever noticed, they will, some of them will just absolutely beat themselves bloody as they're walking this path. it's like we're going to recreate the sufferings of Christ and we're going to show how serious we are by even wounding ourselves as we walk along this. And then God will know we're spiritual. If we're willing to wound the flesh for the sake of the spirit, God will know we're serious. So that's one influence that was coming in to the church. The other doesn't seem quite as graphic anyway and sounds better, sounds more churchy. They would come in and they, these, these were the Jewish people. And I don't mean, you guys do understand there is Israeli and there's Jew. And Jew, we're referring to the religious culture of the Jewish people here. The Judaizers or the people, the Judaic people would come in and say, okay, listen, um, I know you have Jesus and that's great. But Jesus was Jewish and Jesus honored the Sabbath and Jesus did this and Jesus was circumcised and Jesus did all these different things. And so, so that's great that Jesus died for your sins, but you also have to do all of these other things too. So it was sort of a Jesus plus something. If the Gnostics are Jesus minus all the things of the flesh, that's how you please God. Well, then the Judaizers are the opposite. They're Jesus plus Jesus plus this religious ceremony, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus this and this and this and this and all these religious rules. And by doing all these things, we are devoting ourselves and being obedient to and earning God's favor. So Paul hears about this, that these two thought processes are really prevalent in the area. They're really pressing down now on the people of Colossae. And so he wants to write about this and he wants to deal with it. And so he does it 
as we've seen as we studied chapter 1, first and foremost by doing this. He writes chapter 1, and in chapter 1, he just says, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Whether it's asceticism, whether it's religion, doesn't matter what it is. Jesus comes first. Jesus is first. Jesus moved first. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. And he is exalting Jesus. And his goal is to make Jesus so attractive. To help them, under, not to even make him, because he is, but maybe to show them how incredible Jesus is so that they would be so enraptured and so just consumed with the beauty and the majesty and the power of Jesus that these conflicting ideas wouldn't even matter anymore. And so he first upholds Jesus Christ and he upholds the gospel and he upholds Jesus and his power and his might and all of these things. And now he's kind of transitioning Verse 6 starts out with the word therefore. It's a transitional phrase. It means, now therefore, in light of all of those things that we just talked about, Paul would say, therefore, and now he's going into, this is what, this is what we do in response. Because of all this, this happens. This is how this plays out. This is how this affects us. This is what this looks like moving forward. And so we're going to be moving into now the section of Colossians that deals with a lot of things. Christian living, marriages, family, all sorts of issues about what it looks like to live as a Christian. Now that Paul has described what is it that makes us a Christian And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes into this new transition now, beginning in verse 6 and says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And this paragraph um, that we're going into now is referred to as the heart of Colossians. This is the heart of what he wants to say. And then it's going to play out in different ways after that. And he starts it out by saying, Therefore, in light of all that stuff, what I said, all those things about Jesus... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, that text has been taught predominantly two main ways. I'm not saying you couldn't go a third, fourth, or fifth way, or people have it. There's two predominant ways that people approach this specific text. So I'm going to give both of them to you, okay? The first one is this. Paul writes, therefore, because of all this we know about Jesus, as you receive Jesus, so walk in him. What does that mean? Well, you would say, okay, Jeff, how did you receive Jesus? As you received him, so walk in him. So how did you receive Jesus? What was that like? Like, did you earn it? Did you do a bunch of good deeds? And then Jesus looked at you and was like, you know, Jeff, he's kind of nailing it. I think he's worthy of me. I'm going to save him. Is that how it worked? Well, Paul would say, absolutely not. Paul teaches that none of us have earned our salvation. Romans chapter 3 actually teaches that no one's even looking for God. That God's looking for us. And Romans chapter 5 says that while we were yet sinners, at our absolute worst, that is when Jesus said, I'm going to die for him. And so he would go back to it. Like, what is the gospel? The gospel is this, starts off with the foundation or the starting point of the gospel is understanding the fact that we have fallen and can't possibly earn our salvation. That we need a savior. So Jeff, how did you receive him? Well, humbly helplessly, desperately, graciously, I need you. Right. Okay. So Jeff, Paul would say, so walk in him. What do you mean by that? 
Well, think of the two influences that are there. These are, the, these are the dots that people would connect in approaching this. Think of the influences. Jeff, if you received Jesus in grace and you did nothing to earn your salvation, walk in that. Why would you be tempted to buy into the things that these guys are teaching, these Gnostics? If Jesus saved you in spite of your flesh, why do you think now that what you have to do to show Jesus that you're serious is starve yourself of all these things and put all this pressure on you like you're now going to earn it? Why would you do that? Don't, don't get saved by Jesus. That's your foundation. And then step off of that foundation and buy into this competing philosophy that's out there. Don't do that, Jeff. As you received him, the grace of Jesus. Now walk in that. And that's great news. And it's even better news, at least for me and my background in religion. The other side of that, Jeff, did you do anything? Was it abstaining from the flesh that got you saved? No. Well, likewise, was it church attendance that caused Jesus to love you? Of course not. Did you earn his favor? Did you go to enough ceremonies and memorize enough Bible verses and do enough religious things that he finally was like, you know, Jeff has finally achieved the rank of savable. So I'm going to take him in now. Good job, Jeff. Here's your certificate. Is that what, is that what happened, Jeff? No. I, I mean, he saved me when I barely knew anything about him. Right. So don't now leave the foundation of the gospel and jump over here and go, now that I'm saved, I've got to work really hard in doing all these things to earn God's favor. When God has already freely given you his favor, so much so that he sent his only son to die for you. Like, what more than that are you actually going to earn by going to church? What more than that are you actually going to earn through how many tithe checks you sign or any of those things? Jeff, like, seriously, don't leave that foundation. Walk in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you received him, so walk in him. And that is really good news, especially for those that have been crippled by that burden of religion that's been over our shoulders for so long. Amen? Amen. And that's kind of how a lot of people would actually approach that particular text. But is that what Paul's really trying to say? I think Paul says those things in this text, uh, in Colossians as a whole. And I know that Paul says those things all over the place throughout his writings, places like Galatians and others. But in this sentence right here where it says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think we read kind of our own Western cultural experiences in, into that. And what I mean by that is this. We use the phrase, as you received him. And to us, we hear, have you received Jesus into your heart? Have you received the gospel? Have, have you become his? his? Is Jesus in your heart now? Are you a Christian? And then as you received him, as you were saved, so walk in him. But the word that Paul uses here is a different word than that. He uses this word received. It's actually a very technical Jewish word that was only used in specific instances. If, if it was in our culture, we would almost say it's a seminary word. And, and this word here, the idea of receiving Jesus, it's, it actually translates the transmission of a set of ideas or knowledge. So it doesn't, he's not talking about a person. What, what he's saying is not as you received Jesus... But as you've received these understandings about Jesus, you might say, 
It's something that's added into their faith that they've built on the foundation. So they, they've been saved by the gospel and they understand the gospel of Jesus. And now Paul's saying, and now, now, as you guys have been growing, this church has been around for a few years. As you've received this, as a rabbi would say to his follower, that they receive the yoke of their teaching and instruction. Paul would say to this church, as you receive these teachings about Jesus, this stuff that I've shared with you, as you've received this, now walk in that. So what is it that they've received? What is it he's talking about when he says that? If it's not about the instance of salvation, if it's these set of teachings, what is it that he's talking about? Well, the word therefore is the link. He's talking about what he has just shared with them in chapter 1 moving forward. Particularly, read with me, looking at verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, we're speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what he's saying. Church, all these things that we know about Jesus, which includes the gospel, he talks about this, right? The idea that Jesus, through the blood of the cross, has reconciled all things to himself. But he's saying even more than that, this understanding, walk in it. What's the understanding? The understanding can really be summarized by this. Jesus is Lord. He's king. He's ruler. And he, he uses the phrase in verse 6 that we're looking at here. Therefore, as you received, and this literally translates, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who is master. He's saying, as you have received these teachings about the Messiah, who is Lord, walk in that. In other words, this. Guys, you've been saved. He's, he's writing to the church, remember. He's writing to saved people, Hopefully. He's writing to people that have already received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's teaching them these new things. And then he's saying, okay, guys, now listen. As you're learning this stuff, as you're understanding this stuff, as you are coming to grips with the reality of who Jesus is, that has to affect the way you live. It has to. What you're learning about him, his grace, yes, his mercy, yes, but his lordship, yes. It has to affect the way your life looks. Knowing this, you walk in accordance with it. It's got to affect you somehow, church. So let it. That's what he's teaching right here. And my worry, even as I was studying this text and reading, because I'll be quite honest with you, I approached this text at the beginning of my study to teach the entire thing that first way until I started digging a little bit more. And as I was studying this stuff and thinking about it and realizing, I thought, you know, I, I think, and this is not me, I know I do a lot of the teaching, so I'm, I'm really not trying to like pat myself on the shoulder or anything at all. I think we teach the gospel really well here. I really think we do. 
I think we put a really good emphasis here at Heritage on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are not saved by your works, that we are saved by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and what he has done for us. And we preach grace, grace, grace. Amen? I think we do a good job of that. But I started wondering, I I wonder if we're serving the church as well as we should be with helping those who are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ understand the reality that we are also saved because we're supposed to serve and obey him at the same time. We can shy away from obedience because we're worried people will take that as I have to do stuff for Jesus. And the Bible teaches against that. But the Bible teaches that for those who have been saved and called into the family of God, that Jesus is Lord of all. And and we love that Jesus is our friend. And we love that he is our savior. And we the love of God through Christ and, and arms open wide to accept. We love all of that stuff. Amen? And we should. He wants us to love it. So do we love it? Yes. Yes. But what's the point of that? Like once that love has been granted to us, what happens next? Do we just sort of bask in it like a, a nice warm robe until the day that Jesus comes again? What is the outplaying of that? What does it look like to live in light of those understandings? Well, Paul kind of gives us some description in verse 7. He says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so at first it seems to be like the potential for some um, um, conflicting terms, at least in terms of direction, but you don't have to be much of a house builder to understand how important it is to have a foundation that goes down and then obviously the building that goes up. And so he says here, the words he uses, what does it look like for someone understanding what we know about Jesus as Savior and as Lord to walk that out? What does that look like? He says, we're to be rooted, which means dug down and connected to. We're to be built up, which actually means brought nearer to completion. And we're to be established, which established, even in the the word established, there's an interesting meaning to think through as well. It means increasing in strength, but it also means proven, as in an establishment, a, a business that's established has stood the test of time. It's proven its benefit to the community. And it means verified, as if proven, established to be true. So what, what does that look like? like and is, is Paul getting off base here? Is Paul walking away from a foundation with regards to Jesus? Because Jeff, come on, man. You teach Jesus and grace here, and you're saying we don't leave foundations, but now you're talking about other things. How does this work out? Well, think of the teachings of Jesus Christ. I think there's a, a really good parallel to this in Jesus' own teaching. I've got the text for you if you can see this here on our screens, and it's from John chapter 15. It's the, it's the teaching about abiding And and listen to what it says. I am the true vine, and the Father is my vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Hashtag established. This is a parallel teaching. Now, this teaching, I would imagine, if you were to go, um, don't do it right now, please, but if you were to Google or go, maybe go to the local Christian bookstore or whatever, my guess is you could probably find some verses from that text, maybe like on a Thomas Kincaid type painting or a picture or a card or a book cover or whatever, and it might be written in like pink. And it'll be like abide in some nice pretty cursive language. And there'll be like flowers and a vine and this kind of beautiful setting that's there. It's sort of this romanticized, good, but romanticized, almost nostalgic, warm, fuzzy idea of taking this sort of idea of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you. And this real sort of kumbaya um, idea. But, but here's, here's the thing. Abiding in Christ is so good and it's so important. But look, abiding in Christ is more than just getting up in the morning with your Bible, a cup of coffee, and a warm, fuzzy blanket. Abiding in Christ, according to Jesus' own teaching of what it means to abide in Christ, is less about that one hour and more about what you took in in that hour actually playing out in your life the rest of that day. It's... It, we love that idea of getting up in the morning and just Jesus is like our, our friend and he's our savior and, and like a warm blanket. There's comfort in that. And all of that is true. I don't, I'm not trying to take away any of that. But Jesus' own teachings are saying that what it looks like to actually abide in me is that you're so grafted into who I am through his word, through the spirit that's been planted in you, that you're going to start producing fruit. Not fruit like the rest of the world, but fruit like my kind of fruit. And it's going to come out of your time in the word. It's going to come out of your understanding of who I am. It's going to come out of those kind of things. And bearing fruit, he means literally like when you get up from that devotional moment and go about your day, your day should look different than it would the person who doesn't believe in those things. In, in other words, this. Can our work save us? Absolutely not. Can you do enough things to earn your salvation? Absolutely not. But there can be a danger even in a gospel-centered church that we can so emphasize grace and so de-emphasize works that then we end up accidentally teaching Christians that you don't have to do anything. And that is not in the Bible. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that true Christians will do things. In fact, in that very text... Jesus' abide teaching, the one that we love, the, the friendship, this idea of abide, it goes on in verse 14. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Not going to see that on too many bumper stickers, are you? Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Again, does not mean that Jesus goes, I could use some friends. Let's see. Who's doing what? Nope. Nope. No, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, look at that. They just gave a dollar to a homeless person on the side of the road. That was really sweet. Let me follow them for a little while. They're listening to worship music. That's a plus. Oh, look at them. They had a chance to rent that rated R movie and they were about to, but then they were like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I love that. And, and Jesus follows you around. 
He saw you read your Bible this morning. He knows you went to church twice last month, two whole days last month you were in church. And he just goes, you know what? I'll take, that's my kind of friend right there. It's not what it means. What it means is this. People who have met Jesus, had their hearts changed by Jesus, been filled with the spirit of Jesus, are Jesus's friends. And Jesus's friends all follow Jesus's commandments because it's an outworking of an inner change that God is doing in the heart of his friends. That's what that means. And so we can be so afraid as a church to teach about serving God because we're worried that people will take that wrong and think they have to earn salvation. And we actually live in a pretty re, um, uh, um, legalistic religious culture. So in a lot of ways, that, that is a huge emphasis for us because it's kind of what we're around a lot of the times. But he didn't save us to just leave us wrapped up in a warm blanket with the Bible and coffee mug that morning just waiting on the day when he appears. He saved us that we might serve him and obey him because he's Lord, because he's king, because he is the master. That's what he is. Now, Paul will push hard coming up soon against that legalistic notion. At the beginning of chapter 3, when he really starts to dive into Christian living and what your family looks like and all that stuff, he's going to say, if you've been raised in Christ Jesus, then do these things. And, and the, the implication of that is, if you're not saved, just stop reading right now. Just don't even bother, because you're going to go through reading all these things that, that you're going to read. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. You're going to think doing that is going to make you saved, and yet you're going to do it without the power to even do it, because you won't have my spirit in you, because you've never even met me. So you're just setting yourself up for failure. So if you don't have Jesus, when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, you're out. Just, you, just stop, put the book down, and move on. That's what he says. But for those who know Jesus, who he's the shepherd, who hear his voice, there's stuff to do. Like obedience matters. The work we do for him matters. God cares about how we live our lives. He, it matters to him. You understand that, church? You're looking at me like you don't want that to be true, but you understand that, right? Amen? So con consider this. Listen to what James says. I think we have the text for this right here. Again, if you're not a Christian in this room, this is not for you. This is not for you. Please believe me. But Christians in this room, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Oh, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So here's what he's saying. Abraham's the father of faith. And he's the one who was told to take his only son, go up a mountain, and offer him his sacrifice. Now the Bible teaches us that Abraham believed God was good, believed God was holy, and even believed that God was able to raise his own son up from the dead if he did that. He believed all of those things. But he still went and did it. If he had just stayed at the bottom of the hill and said, I believe in you, God, and I believe you could raise him from the dead, and so as a result, I'm just not going to do anything. James is saying, that's not genuine faith. That's knowledge about God. That's not faith in God, because faith in God produces in that same way. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Christianity is not about busted up people doing better. You understand me? Christianity is not about broken, busted up people doing better and working harder. Christianity is about dead people coming to life. Dead people. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week. Christianity is dead people coming to life. But live people do stuff. I mean, even when Lazarus was in the grave and he's called by Jesus, when he raises him from the dead, come forth, Lazarus is wrapped up in a hundred pounds worth of burial wraps. And what does Jesus say? Get that stuff off of him. He's alive now. He's not going to walk around in burial clothes anymore. He's going to look different. He's going to walk around like a live person. And so too, Paul is emphasizing to us, listen church, it is one thing to subscribe to the belief that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the grave. It it is one thing to say, I believe that happened. I believe Jesus existed. I believed all of those different things. It is another thing to put faith in that to the degree that that even controls your decisions and your heart and your motive and the very core of who you even are as a person. The demons believe in Jesus. The demons believe Jesus died. The demons believe Jesus rose from the dead. If they weren't there, they've seen the YouTube by now. They know it happened. And even at his name, they shudder. So they understand more about his strength and power than we do. But they're not obeying him. They're not following him. And they're not submitted to him. Because they're not regenerate. They're not followers of Jesus. And so church, again, Christians only in this room, this is, this is what, what I want to share with you guys. Because we're about to go into sections in this passage that are talking about Christian living. How to have a better marriage, raising your kids, all sorts of things like that. And my fear is this, that we could approach this like they're options. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, the Bible says that this is what a marriage should look like. I don't know, mine seems to be going okay and we don't do it that way. So we'll just ride this out the way that it is. And I don't know, maybe if I need that teaching later, I'll, I'll use it. But I'm not going to do this. And we'll focus, man, we can get so excited and happy about the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and focus on the goodness of Jesus. And then forget that there's actually actual commands in the Bible that come from the Lord of all. And that, that he's Lord. And then there's this element of it too. You're going to think I'm scaring you, and I hope I am, because it's scary. The day will come. Jesus is alive. You know this, right? Amen? Do you believe he's alive? Do you believe in God? Do you believe he's powerful and majestic and all these things we've been reading? One day, you will stand 
by yourself in front of him. Like, think about that. Just, just think about that a second. One day, I, I know it's not a judgment unto condemnation or judgment into hell. I get that. But we are accountable. That's really clear in Jesus' own teaching. And one day, the day is going to come when all these things we believe are visible right in front of us. And you will stand in the presence of God. And I assure you, that, that should be terrifying. Because if you read through the scriptures, and I challenge you, here's a good Bible study for you this week. Go through the Bible and look up stories and accounts of when God's presence showed up. And pay attention to what the people whom God showed up in front of, pay attention to what they did. I'll give you the shortcut version of this. They all laid down, all of them, face first. And there's, there's accounts where, out of fear, where the guys would write about it later, and they're trying to describe what it was like when God's presence showed up, and the only thing they can describe is the floor, because it's all they saw. Because in our sinfulness, in front of God's holiness and majesty and power, there's a fear. Now, God is good and loving, and yes, the arms of Jesus are going to wrap you up and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But I'm telling you right now, if you think your flesh is going to be comfortable standing before God in that day, I don't think that's going to be the case. And I think we're absolutely accountable for what God has called us to now. And at the very least, I know this, that Paul calls us to say, in light of what you know about Jesus, if this is your claim, your creed about who Jesus is, it's got to affect the way that you live. You, you can't just say Jesus is my Savior, but now that I'm saved, I'm going to set everything else about him aside and go live the way that I want to live. That's not how it works. Because he's not just Savior. He's not just friend. He's King of Kings. He's the one who holds everything in existence together. He is a power we cannot possibly comprehend. He is loving and he is good, but he is master God and Lord and we are submitted to him. And I don't want us to be so emphasis, like we want to emphasize grace, but not so much that we get into these things about family and about all these things and we forget that these are commands from our king. On the same level, like, well, it's advice, biblical advice about marriage and all this stuff, but... I don't know. I'll think about it. Um, I heard, I, I'm going to see what, you know, Dr. Phil has tomorrow and we'll, we'll decide from there. How about that? I got a way better laugh in the first service. I, I should have ditched it, Jeremy. Jeremy talked me into it. I should, if you don't Google that, it'll ruin your life. And I ruined our sermon. But here's the thing, guys. In the Ten Commandments, and Sam's going to come up and, and lead us in worship. If you're listening wherever you are, Sam, you can come on up. There, there's a biblical principle that we've pointed out with regards to the commandments of God. We emphasize it a lot in Ephesians. And it's this. It's indicatives versus imperatives. In, in the Bible, the indicative always precedes the imperative. In other words, there's a why before there's a what. Uh, or let me put it this way. Before there are commands in Scripture, there are always these glorious indicatives as to why that we should do that, most of which have to do with the goodness of God, the mercy of God, or the gospel in particular. So all these New Testament books do this. This, this book itself, he spends a whole chapter on who God is and, and what God is like and what God has done for us. And then he goes into, now in light of those things, do this. 
And this is a biblical pattern. You see it in the Ten Commandments. God says, before he just says, these are the things I want you to do, he actually starts out by saying, now, now listen, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. He reminds them of grace and mercy. He wants them to remember the deliverance they experienced when they were slaves in Egypt. That he loved them so much that he came and delivered these slaves. He wants them to understand and know that. And then he says, I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And, and here's what, this is healthy for us as a church to pause and remember. It may not be as fun as the warm, fuzzy, gray stuff. It may not be, but it is healthy to stop and remember and go, you know what? That's a command and a promise. That yes, Jesus died for us in his teaching there on the, the one about abide, that, that he is the one that has caused us to bloom in the first place, yes. But then he says, I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And, and that's not just a command, don't worship anyone else but God. I am God, honor me. But it's also, a, hey, all the other houses you're building for yourself, all the other gods that you're building for themselves, all those things are going to come crashing down. There is one God and one Lord. And one day we will be before him, church. And so I just want to challenge us. Me too. Don't think I haven't been dealing with my own convictions during all this, but challenge us. Are there areas in our life where we've been so comfortable with the grace and mercy and love of Jesus that we've, we've forgot maybe the commands of Jesus in these areas and we've somehow even theologically convinced ourselves it's okay? He's master, the Bible teaches. He's king, the Bible teaches. He's Lord of lords and church. He has saved us that we might be part of his kingdom and allow the life of Jesus Christ to be worked out through us. What we do matters. The works we do matter. And if you're here and you've never experienced any of that, you've never met Jesus, you've never had an interaction with Jesus Christ, you don't know him at all, let me assure you, he's real. He died for your sin. He rose again from the dead. He is going to return. And one day all of us will stand before him. So whether it's going to him right now in prayer or in the word or stopping at the prayer room on the way out and meeting with some of the elders and praying there, I want to invite you to the reality of who Jesus is, to know him, to meet him, and to honor him. But church, right now, if you would, I want you to just take a moment with heads bowed and eyes closed. Not, not some of this so, so that the other people don't feel uncomfortable, but for you to look inward, to reflect on this and to go, as David the psalmist said, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Are there places in our own heart where we've resisted the lordship of God, where, where we'll, we are still seated on the throne and we've relegated Jesus to just Sunday? He is God He's Lord and He's King. And in light of our understanding of that, may His Spirit work through our lives to produce works. May our life look different. So will you go before Him, do some business with God now, and then stand and worship our King. In Jesus' name.